All right. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome welcome to a special episode of Learning Tech Talks. We're taking another slight deviation from learning technology, but we're remaining diligently focused on digital transformation, specifically in HR and learning. So to help me tackle this one, I'm joined by my friend and HR industry expert, Matt Burns from Bento HR. Thanks for joining me, Matt. And uh, for those of you joining us live, be sure to give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in someone, and uh, you know, let us know where you're from in the comments. So Matt, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Um, yeah. I know where you're from, but for everybody else, where are you from? And those of you watching, let us know where you're from. I'm in beautiful Vancouver, Canada today, and it's a sunny day. Um, I know that I'm looking outside from inside my apartment. Okay. Yes, you are. You are home looking out. So it's I'm in the gorgeous Waukesha, Wisconsin, as always. Um, it is not sunny and beautiful here. Despite the very bright looking background, it is very gloomy and cloudy here today, but um, still still nice out. So I can't complain. Warming up, which is especially good considering the circumstances. Mm. All right. So before we get into it, before we get into the discussion, uh, let's let's do our, our kickoff question. And again, everybody watching, this one applies to you too. Put it in the comments. But Matt, in your apartment, right, or, or your residence, whatever, anybody watching, residence, apartment, condo, house, if you could add a room to it, any room of your choice, you have no budget restrictions, anything like that, what would it be and why? Inside or outside? I'll, I'll leave that open. You can oh, choose because like pop culture would dictate that I need a giant pen full of large cats. <laughs> but, uh, yes. To make it through right now. Right. For emotional. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing my part for society right now. One Tiger King episode at a time. Um, so uh, what I would add actually is a study. I would love to have a big like old books, old wooden shelves, fireplace, comfortable leather chair, ladder, ladder on wheels, ladder, secret passage. Um, pull the book, open the yeah. door. Okay. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading lately. Um, I just bought a guitar. I have lots of spare time now. So some are quiet with a fireplace and a bunch of old, that smell of old books. To me, that would be a really nice place to be right now. Okay. Okay. Mine's a little less like cool. I think if I, if I could just like, right. If it was just like, Hey, you know, splurge, splurge decision, add something on, you know, those, you know, those golf, setups where you can oh, yeah. swing and like actually it's tracking your ball trajectory the curve and everything like that i would totally love to have one of those things with you know some comfy armchairs in the back so uh, you could you could you know have a foursome playing but then you, know, you take turns and eat popcorn and, and drink a beer while you're doing it. or if the kids are with right they can have juice boxes um, but then i can teach them to golf without having to you know get kicked off the golf course for <laughs> you know, destroying and distracting everyone else out there. So okay. you can probably convert that into a movie theater as well and watch like movies down there with a the family. Purpose. I like that. Yep. There you go. Stadium slash golf room. Okay. All right. I'll add that to my bucket list of things that will probably never, never be attached to my house right now, but Hey, who knows? You'll have your cat room. I'll have my golf room. It'll be, it'll be a, a great fantasy world. All right. Well, so, so getting into this, right. We're talking a little bit about, today about you know what this whole situation means and, and how we can work through it but to to set the stage you, you haven't been on the show before um, mm -hmm. tell tell me and tell the audience a little bit about you your background you know where you where you come from yeah no happy to so I spent uh, 20 years in the corporate world 15 of those were in human resources the last five as an HR executive uh, I cut my teeth largely as an HR generalist, but in those last five years, spent a lot of time leading transformational projects. So that means large restructuring initiatives, um, a lot of reconstruction in terms of individual uh, corporate divisions. I worked a lot, uh, like you, Chris, with large corporations. Um, so a lot of work restructuring HR, um, reconfiguring organizations, um, and did that over a number of different industries. And um, over the course of the last five years I was in those roles, I realized that there was a bit of a tension in terms of the traditional business structure. And I felt like I could have an impact that was greater uh, outside the four walls of a single organization and ultimately decided to leverage the experience that I had in you know, leading digital transformation activities um, to do uh, work with other organizations uh, and help make organizations more human centric. Uh, and that's what we do now at Bento HR. It's really around digital transformation. Uh, it's around analytics, technology, and strategy and, and the blend of those three things. Okay. Well, well, I want to dig into the tra digital transformation piece a little bit more here, but one of the things you hit on that 
I think this whole situation right now has rapidly raised to the top that I don't necessarily know everybody's fully grasping onto this yet is the importance of human-centric design in organizations and, and digital transformation. I think a lot of times there's this misperception that, oh, technology, digital transformation means less focus on humans. And I would yeah. say, no, quite the opposite. If anything, right, that is that is one of the most important things. So when you talk about human-centric design in HR, yeah. uh, how do you define that? Or where have you, you know, been driving that? It's not that complicated, to be honest. I think we we overcomplicate this. Yeah. Um, so I think I would apply the same standard that we have to external revenue generating customers as I do to the internal employee. So it starts really simply with a journey mapping exercise. What is the experience of your candidates, your employees uh, through their time with the organization, um, all the way from the hiring process through to being alumni, if you will, uh, and breaking those things down to identify where there's friction points um, and where there are opportunities for you to enhance the offering, if you will, in terms of a service mindset. Um, I think a lot of times HR leaders uh, have struggled with lack of resources or lack of technology and tools to be able to, to do that. Uh, I ultimately think that digital transformation and particularly post COVID-19 is gonna provide a lot of opportunity to build in human-centric design into the solution. Um, everything that I recommend for organizations uh, is usually very, very compelling from an ROI perspective. Uh, we look for opportunities with things like automation yeah. or predictive analytics, where you're gonna save money in some areas, but being intentional about layering in human-centric design into the future state, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, in my last organization, we automated the entire hiring process. Okay. So orientation, onboarding, everyone got individual customized onboarding packets with videos, with all the forms, electronic signatures, full integrations, seamless process. The candidates loved it. The managers loved it. It was just super easy, lots of tracking, lots of really good UX. If there was a, you know, a delay, a nudge, more information, um, we wanted to create a really good experience for people coming into the organization. It was a retail company, so the speed, of, the speed to productivity had to be short. So we yeah. really were intentional about creating a, a really good first kind of 30 days with that individual. In, and what I would call breadcrumbing the information. So a lot of organizations will dump 45 pieces of paper on your lap on your first day and say, fill these forms out. And then they never talk to you again. You probably don't yeah. see HR. Yeah, it's very tactical. It's here's the things that we need to get you yeah. in the system, get you a badge, get you a computer, get you tax ready, and, and then move you on your way move you on your way. This is different. So we we still look at the same types of documentation, but we we would, in this case, curate the flow of documentation to the appropriate time in your hiring process. So it's not like we're managing to a spreadsheet. We're managing to what makes sense for you as an employee. So that's one quick example where we were able to save a ton of money in terms of management time, in terms of administrative overheads, create a better experience the candidates like, the managers liked, and did it in a cost-neutral way. So yeah. that's an example of you make a short-term investment with some capital around technology, but ultimately the ROI pays itself back. And you know, in our case, it was the same year. Well, and the thing with that, because I've led a number of onboarding projects on this one, and a lot of times I think one of the areas that we get, we struggle with is when we get into this quantification piece, we mm. don't always do a good job of telling the story. And there are quantifiable metrics. You actually can't, with onboarding specifically, it's mm. easy to Google, right, what 90-day attrition costs a company, right? It is it is very simple to come down to dollars and cents. Hey, if we can move 90-day attrition from from this to this, right, that is a tangible benefit you can you can go back to which helps tell that business story versus just hey we need a bunch of money for a you know first class user experience like that's important but when you frame it that way it doesn't always resonate so i i never frame it in the employee context this is yeah. like the dirty secret one of the questions i get a lot is how do you build that business case yep. i have a demo i've worked for companies that all I'll be, I'll be polite, frugal, frugal companies that were very cost conscious. Um, you know, I, I, my budget as an HR leader has never increased year over year in my entire career. It's always gone down. Yeah. Only when I've taken a new job in a new organization, when I got a good size budget, was able to negotiate that. And then of course, over time, it starts to become smaller and smaller and smaller as a percentage of overall revenue. Um, I think in that case, um, there's two things that I would mention. The first thing is, there's measurements that we know that are societally accepted, whether it be 90 day turnover. We also went one step further and actually introduced free survey monkey surveys 
at intervals in that process and actually yeah. assess every person at day seven, at day 14, at day 28, and then ultimately at day 60 and day 90. So we were able to get even better data, three questions, very simple, uh, that validate that our process that we had designed was actually yeah, happening exactly. in real life. And then we were able to pinpoint where there was breakdown. So we wouldn't just say, hey, our turnover 90 days is problematic. We would say, hey, our turnover for 90 days is problematic like, um, and here's why. Yep. And have the data behind it to be able to demonstrate that. I think that's super important. Um, but back to my earlier point, I when I'm making a business case to an organization, whether it's a CFO or a CEO or a board, I mention the employee benefits around experience as a um, as a nice side effect of a business decision. Yeah. So I lead with, we're going to be more compliant. We're going to save money. It's going to be more efficient. We're going to reduce our path to productivity. Um, that is the benefit. Um, you know, yes, there's a huge turnover cost in terms of just the, the money to hire people and turn them over, but there's also a huge cost in terms of productivity. Most yeah. employees aren't fully productive in 90 days. It takes them time. Um, and in particular, this is this is easiest probably to, to measure in a sales organization. But if you can measure it in any organization where productivity is a measure, you know, manufacturing, sales, then you're able to demonstrate that kind of that learning curve and, and the performance. The delta between day 90 and let's say day 180 is what you miss. That incremental performance boost is what you would miss if people keep turning over before day 90. So a company is investing a lot of resources for a very small ROI. What we did to demonstrate that was we actually built in a you know, very back of the napkin type model, which was it costs this much money, let's just say it's $10,000 to onboard and orient an employee. In the first three months of their employment, here's, the, here's what they deliver on average to the company. And here's the, here's the ratio. And then we did the same thing for six months and 12 months, and we're able to show that the ROI to the company was obviously much greater the longer they stayed with the organization. And that Delta was a really compelling side-by-side -side comparison. And when our CFO and board saw that, it was like, okay, we have a problem. Yep. And it'll be better for the employee experience. Yeah. Well, and I think that's right. Speaking the language of business is is that critical component of it. And the other piece that you hit on that is something that I am very excited about with where technology is taking things is the data piece, right? It, it's it's historically been difficult. And that's where I think, you know, sometimes we beat each other, ourselves up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Some of it well-deserved. Some of it absolutely well-deserved. Some of it was, you know, for a long time, we've been operating under the, you know, capabilities that we've had before. And I think technology is unlocking tremendous amounts of data points that we didn't have before um, that we can now use to help tell a story to say, well, you know, we didn't really used to know what the impact was, or if we did, it was very qualitative, um, things like that, that, that maybe now we can tell a, a better story while at the same time, like you said, and we're dramatically improving the employee experience. Here's where I struggle, though. So I agree with what you're saying. And I, I've been in HR long enough to remember a time 15 years ago when I mean, well, this is back when Dave Ulrich was talking about HR business partners and like that model. Um, and, you know, data was becoming prevalent in HR. And I remember my 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 coaches at the time saying, this is going to be amazing. It's going to transform HR's relationship with the business. We're going to finally have quantifiable information. And, you know, HR profession will be materially changed for the better ever, for you know, ongoing. That didn't happen. Um, yeah. Most HR That's organizations fair. evolved to report making and they produce spreadsheets and then they dashboards. let people react to them, dashboards. Um, they're missing that so what? So yes, you see a number, but unless you're playing a proverbial game of KPI whack-a-mole, what are you doing it for? To satisfy curiosity, to aid a political you know, agenda in an organization? Um, so, but doesn't that go back to, because I would say where this breaks down, right? Is the same thing that breaks down with technology is when you approach technology as the solution instead of an enabler to a solution, it's going to break down. And the same is true with data. If you're like, oh, data, that's the solution. We're going to get data and the data is going to crush it. And we're going to have all the data to tell the best stories, the, the greatest stories. And you're like, well, okay, that, that's not going to happen. You're going to have a lot of fancy data. And that's where I think sometimes it's easy to say, well, okay, data is the problem. It's like, well, no, data is not the problem. It's certainly an enabler, just like technology is an enabler in the right hands. Well, I mean, what I was going to, the point I was going to make was you're, and you're absolutely right. And here's the piece that frustrates me. We, we don't have to rely on the technology organizations to enhance their analytics suites for us to be able to have better data. 
True. A big part of what we're talking about. And I want one thing I want to leave people with as they're Matt. I don't think I think I think we lost your audio, man. Your your AirPods are uh how's that? Hey, there you're back. I'm back now. So the one I was just talking, I was just talking nonsense. Everybody. The one thing you wanted to tell everybody. Well, then I'll just tell it now. <laughs> so what I was gonna say there was there you go, everybody watching. That was the cliffhanger. And thanks yeah, for exactly. watching Learning Tech Talks. Have a great yeah. week. If you if you want to hear more, put your email in the box because this is all about email <laughs> capture. Sign up for this this distribution list. Yeah, exactly. We're not gonna use your emails for inappropriate no, things. No, no, what I was saying was um you know, implying some basic intentionality behind your analytics practice does not, it's not predicated on the technology you have. I mentioned that I introduced SurveyMonkey surveys, three survey questions, three times, four times throughout the hiring process. My budget was $0 um, and was able to create data points that were able to tell a story. But we did that because we thought through in advance what data points would we want to be able to tell the story with, and then how do we solve for that? So we identified the business problem first and then reverse engineered it using the tools. So if you're sitting here waiting for the latest workday update to get an analytics suite, you're looking at this the wrong way. You need to look at this from what data points do I need to be able to capture that relate to the business problems that affect us today? And then we're going to go through that, I think, Chris, later today around, you know, what would I be doing as a CHRO? Now, spoiler alert, I'd be looking at strategic workforce planning really closely right now. Um, so what does your data tell you around that? And if you don't have the data to be able to support it, can you can you augment it? Can you replicate it? Can you develop it in a kind of a MacGyvery kind of way without <laughs> spending a hundred thousand dollars to you know a vendor to build this dashboard? Um, and if you're going to do that, the reason why I like that is because if you have some intention behind why you're collecting the information, it's a much more likely that you're actually going to action the result of the data because ultimately we collect data to be able to measure performance or measure efficacy and then you use it as a benchmark going forward so without the without the actual action they're just numbers on a spreadsheet yeah yeah well and so in my entire career right i've gone from organizations where like you said there was no budget right you were mm -hmm. you were buying your own pencils to you know <laughs> keep your desk staff to to having budgets where you can do those things and the reality is what, what i've seen at least my experience has been yeah, can you do things differently when you have more budgets? Are there maybe some cool tools you can throw in your arsenal that you you wouldn't if you had no budget? Sure, but has there ever fundamentally been something where I've gone, I can't do that because I don't have XYZ you know, budget or XYZ capability? No, and I think even more, there's more and more um, you know, tools out there that do make it simple when you know what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean... I've, I've never been in a situation, I've never had the fortune of being in an, in an organization where budget wasn't a consideration. I do have friends though that are in pharmaceuticals or in different industries, you know, public service that the budget isn't as, as important, if you will. I mean, it's always important, but it's not as driven in. When I worked at, you know, organizations like Walmart, everybody knew the budget. Like there was no question about what you had to spend and there was levels of approval at certain, you know, thresholds. And it was very clear around, having to develop a business case. And even in, in Walmart, you could develop a really compelling business case and still not get funded because you're competing against other really strong business cases. So what right. it did for us was it allowed us to, you know, allowed me in particular to sharpen my business case development skills because I knew if I didn't have a really strong, compelling business case, I was going to spend a bunch of time and not get any results for it. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, a bunch of the comments coming in are talking about this, right. And we, I hear it a lot and I, and I've, I think, we say it a lot. I don't know that we always do it well, which is start with the outcome in mind, right? And then work backwards. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm curious on the HR side, because I see it in learning all the time, right? You, people are, you know, just executing and then figuring out, all right, we have this data, we did this thing. What was the impact? And you're like, well, that's right. That's a little backwards. So, you know, on, on the other HR side of things, what other types of challenges do you see in that, you know, in the HR space in terms of what types of outcomes, especially right now, are you seeing HR leaders saying, we need to be focused on this, at least the forward thinking ones who are, who are ahead of the curve? Yeah. So first off, I'm a little bit torn right now. Uh, okay. This has been a really interesting time for me because this is, you know, up until about 18 months ago, I was sitting in a CHRO's job and I can 
100% empathize with those that are in corporate HR functions right now. And I just want to extend my thanks and my gratitude to those individuals who are balancing their individual oh, needs and their family needs with the organizational needs. Um, I'm sure, as you know, Chris, a couple things that we're doing. Um, so first off, Bento HR, we pivoted our business about three weeks ago to go from a revenue generating business to essentially a not-for-profit overnight uh, and putting out more content, trying to connect people to resources, um, with a particular emphasis on the global HR professional. Uh, each day, Enrique Rubio and I from Hacking HR sit at 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. in uh, GMT. And we just have open office hours for any yeah. HR leaders that want to pop by and just chat. Um, and today, we're actually going to announce, so you're going to get the first announcement on this, Chris. Here's the preview. I'm dropping it right now. Let's hope, <laughs> my, let's hope I don't go on to mute. Um, yeah, right. And here it is. And here's the offer. Oh, <laughs> um, we're actually going to be, uh, we understand the importance of what HR professionals mean during this transitional period of time. We're talking a lot about, you know, in the news, you hear a lot about, you know, you know, virus spreading rates and fatalities and quarantines and lockdowns. Yeah. But there are a lot of other issues that are not seen and being discussed that HR leaders are managing right now in organizations. Um, we also know that there have been HR leaders who have been impacted by this particular pandemic. Yep. So Enrique and I had a conversation late last week. We agreed very quickly that we were going to offer now grow uh, scholarships to anybody who has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. So we'll be announcing that today. People will be able to enroll and register in both Grow and Grow X complimentary. We hope that's going to provide some community. We hope that's going to provide them with some learning. They can develop their skills and ultimately become more competitive in that job market on the other end of their involvement in our program. Um, so just as an aside, um, but the three things to answer your question specifically, um, you know, I want to keep things simple. There's a lot going on right now, and I could probably list 75 unique about things. The rest of the afternoon. 100%. But let's just start with three basic things. So if I put on my CHRO hat for a minute and just say, okay, I'm a CHRO. You've dropped me into a company. It's 5,000 employees. It doesn't really matter where the industry is. It doesn't really matter where the geography is. The first thing I'm thinking about is strategic workforce planning. What's my 30-day plan? What's my 90-day plan? What's my 180-day plan? And what's my 12-month plan? And there are so many unknowns right now that I would want to build the model with a couple of different variables in it. So I'll give you some examples. First off is we don't know when we're going back to work. So most of us don't know when our offices are going to reopen. They are going to reopen, but when? We also don't know is how many employees on the other end of this are not going to want to come back to the office. And we don't know how organizations are going to be willing to accept that. Some companies may say, we're okay with this remote work. Some may say, no, we're going back to the way things were. And that may drive some turnover. It may drive some, some tougher conversations. And as you know, there's obviously a much, you know, there's a bigger difference between um, employees and managers who are working in a remote capacity and supporting each other than those who are sitting face-to-face -to -face together in an office. So there's a trend. We lost you again, man. Why does it keep doing that? I don't know. It's, it's weird. Call, call um, Apple. Anybody from the Apple next thing I'm Apple. looking at. <laughs> no, you're good. So workforce planning, right? Um, the next thing I'd be looking at, workforce planning is number one. Number two thing I'm looking at is uh, within, within the workforce planning bucket is what skills do I have in the organization right now? And what am I going to need post COVID-19? So a lot of organizations got caught with their pants down, pardon the expression, and don't have the skill sets internally to be able to manage in a workplace that has to be able to shift from an internal operation into a remote operation. So whether it's IT resources, whether it is HR resources, whether it is technology and infrastructure, they don't have it. Yep. So I would be thinking about what is the plan to get to that place? Because for me, workforce planning is about operational continuity. And a lot of organizations have struggled to maintain a continuous operation in the last three weeks. So that's workforce planning. Number two is I'm looking at automation through technology. So how many processes are required to be done manually, where if we have to shut an office down, business grinds to a halt. So again, from an operational continuity perspective, can we automate things like payroll? Because some organizations are still cutting manual checks. Can we automate things like orientation and hiring so we can expedite that process and not have to do group interviews or bring people in for face-to-face -face conversations at a time when people don't really want to interact face-to-face -face unless they absolutely have to? Uh, so I'm thinking about you know, that you know, technology through automation. Do we have the tools to be able to be effective in this? And then the last thing I, we mentioned already is I'm looking at predictive analytics. I don't know about you, but I was caught off guard by this. 
I don't want to be caught off guard again. I want to be able to, as an HR leader, know what risks are looming down the road for me, whether it is turnover, whether it is learning adoption, whether it is, um, you know, items of those nature. And then I also want to be able to develop plans to mitigate those risks before they become issues. So that's what I'd be thinking about right now is almost a bit of like medium term triage. Um, And at the same time, and we referenced this earlier, it's a tremendous opportunity to reevaluate your entire talent strategy and make it more human centric. You have the impetus, you have the mandate now to make changes in your organization. Take the opportunity to layer in workforce planning, technology, analytics, and make it human centric. And we can turn what has been a very challenging situation into a very positive situation on the other end of this. Well, and there's there's a couple of things that that come to mind in, in the things that you talk through with that. So one, the, the resetting the strategy piece, right? The opportunity we have right now is, is a unique one. And I think mm-hmm. every leader right now should be looking at that and saying, is our strategy the right strategy? Because we have a unique chance to pivot if if it isn't, you know, and, and I think that's something that we're not often given the opportunity to do. So I think the ability to layer in that human centric component as part of it is huge. The other thing is you talked about some of these things, keeping, you know, a CHRO up at night, learning and development is a key component. Totally. To- every single one of those things. And I think it's one of those things where in learning, we have a unique opportunity right now to say, hey, you know, and, and, and it's a risk, right? There's a little bit of a moonshot right now. We can get into this heads down, right? There's fires everywhere. Let's go into execution mode and, and let's create yet another course on how to lead a team remotely, how to run a virtual meeting, right? That, I mean, that's that's a risk. You can be like, quick, get all the developers, make another e-learning course. And That's not the right move to make right now if you're in learning and development. The right move right now is to say, okay, if those are the pain points a CHRO is looking at right now, what are we doing to help identify those skills we need on the other end and develop those skills, right? How are we we proactively getting in front of that? Because there is another world, and it's going to be a different world when this is over. We're not... I, I don't think we're just going to snap back and everything goes back to business as usual. And and that's where we can get in front of that to say, okay, if workforce planning is a thing, then we need to be thinking about retention and onboarding because there's going to be new people coming in. There's going to be people potentially that are at a talent risk. How do we focus on engagement and bring people together so we don't lose some of our top talent? Things like that. I mean, there's, there's ample opportunity for L&D right now to yep. lean in and say, Hey, we're not order takers anymore. We're here to be a strategic partner to the business. Well, and, and so 100% agree. And it ties into our earlier conversation from a workforce planning perspective. That conversation to me, I'm sitting with my head of talent acquisition and my head of learning, and I'm having a conversation around build, borrow, buy. Yep. And we're having, you know, what is the need in the short term? Do we need to go out and procure a bunch of resources? In which case, you know, talent acquisition, you have some work to do. Um, and you have to change your processes potentially and have more of a remote nature to your interview process and accelerate, you know, various elements of screening and background checks and all those things. And for my learning team, it's what internal capacity do we need to build into the organization? And you're, you're bang on. I would not be spending time right now building another course on how to manage your remote workers. There are a ton of, of great resources out there right now. Find them, curate them connect them to your employee base and then focus in on the, the items that are very specific to your organization. Yeah. So whether it is transportation, whether it's retail or whether it's technology, whether it's healthcare, they're all going to go through some form of operational change as a result of this pandemic. We are going to be irreparably you changed and, and different as a result of this time. So be thinking about what that looks like and what the learning strategy needs to look like on a go forward basis um, and whether we're going to focus more on developing internal capacities and flexibility, again, under this guise of operational continuity. Yep. Um, but from a, again, back to this employee centric approach, we have the opportunity here to make that a good news story. We're making an investment in you. We're making an investment uh, in the organization. Uh, Chris, when we spoke on actually on my podcast, we talked about a story from Toyota back in 2008, um, where a, um, you know, a senior executive met with an organization that was in the Middle East. They were a construction company and they were heavily affected by 2008 global economic slowdown. Constructions often hit very hard on that. Uh, They met with the executive from that construction company, met with an executive from Toyota and said, what's your plan? Um, and was surprised to hear that Toyota wasn't planning any layoffs. But in fact, we're going to retain their workforce and double and triple and quadruple down on the training 
And the rationale being from Toyota's perspective was we have benefited a lot over the preceding 10 to 15 years from the economy. This is a correction. Yep. We're not going to overreact to a correction. We're going to take the opportunity to reset as our, as our demand for our products drop. We're going to upskill our workforce and come out stronger as the result of that. Or other organizations are going to operate more from a scarcity mindset and are going to have issues around attrition, are going to have issues around skill shortages, are going to have issues around business continuity. Toyota is not. They came, were able to come out of that very, very strong, not see a bunch of attrition because employees remember, like they remember who got layoff notices and Ooh, who. Yeah. Like, right. We like, talked about this when we were talking about doing this episode that, that yep. employer brand right now is something that has the potential to be devastated for for decades as a result of the way organizations handle this situation and and that is something that should keep every leader up you know about how are we are we doing everything we can you know for our employees on on the um and what you brought up about the automation piece and well so going back to the reskilling one right so you're talking about this reskilling and i think that's where that conversation that learning leaders can bring to the table is helping figure out that strategy because we know what goes into reskilling, right? We know the magnitude of effort and can help make strategic decisions around, is this something we internally invest in reskilling or is this something that has a short enough shelf life, right? From a, from a workforce planning, it's a better strategic decision to outsource this talent because the time and effort it would take to reskill is not worth the investment type things. And I think those are the conversations where we can have that discussion and dialogue right now. Agreed. And, and also, what's the measurement? Right. So demonstrate to me that we're going to if we're going to make a significant investment in l and I'm, I'm there. for I'm here for that. Right. What do we get? The bottom line impact. Yep. And yep. if you can demonstrate to me this investment is worth the time, then most organizations will make that investment. Yeah. Um, whether it's an attrition conversation, whether it's a business continuity conversation, whether it's a downside risk avoidance conversation, there is a, a compelling business case around learning and development. However, I have also seen far too many L&D business cases where numbers aren't mentioned. It's very yeah. qualitative. It's very much around culture and yep. those types of things, which is great. I mean, we it's all agree. Stuff. And it's important good stuff. But it has to have that other component. And if it, it doesn't, you're not going to have a seat at the table, period. Unless you have an executive team and a CEO who just inherently it gets inherently it. Inherently get it. They're not that common. There's <laughs> <laughs> not. It's right. I mean, yeah, agreed, agreed. So well, on, they're not in. Sorry, not to interrupt. They're not incented either. By the way, like most, no, they're not incented. They're not incented to do that. It's it's people do what they're incented to do, and that is not the area they're incented to do. Unless you really get a leader that, you, like you said, that truly. Get, and I've seen a handful of organizations, a handful where there's a leader that just gets it and understands culture engagement and just goes, yep, that has financial qualifications and I, yep, we're doing it. Um, but that's, that's a rarity, I would say. But it comes down to me and I, I don't want to get into a morality conversation this early in the morning, but it comes to me. Um, there's a lot of, so this caught all of us off guard, unless you're one of the handful of people who are epidemiologists and virologists who saw this coming months and months and months ago and been worrying about this. Most of us did not envision a world where we would be at this level of global quarantine. Nope. So we all got caught off guard. Why should the most vulnerable people have the lion's share of the impact? That doesn't right. make sense. No. And I'm not making a conversation here around you know, socialism and communism and all that. I'm just saying, no. if you have billions and billions of dollars and that is affected by this, okay, that's very different than if you're living paycheck to paycheck and have a family and now you suddenly have no income. And I think that the people that have the ability to contribute more at this particular time need to think about doing that and owning more of the, if you will, the burden in the short term, because ultimately we are all interconnected. And if we are not all strong, we're going to have a challenge and this will elongate over a period of time. So I don't know what that looks like in organizations. And I understand there is a financial reality in some companies around this, there is. but ultimately just transferring the ownership to the employee without question. To me, I struggle with that. This is not business as usual right now. No. Well, and that goes back to, so Christina had asked a question about what do we mean when we're talking about human centered, this, mm -hmm. that's exactly what we're talking about where we're saying, Hey, right. This is about people. We are all interconnected and we have to think, this again goes back to thinking strategically because there are long-term implications when you start messing with people, 
right? People aren't this simple, just yes, no switch that it's like, well, if we make this decision, this is the impact. If we make this decision, this is the impact. We have to think very carefully about it. And I think that's what we're getting at with human-centered design is how are we keeping them at the center and them being the whole, not a subset. You hit on the key point though. It's about, it's about the timeline. So you human centric decisions usually have a longer term timeline attached to them. So it's really around the time horizon for the decision. If you're operating quarter to quarter, you're going to miss the boat on opportunities. You have to be looking at a longer term horizon because when you look at people, it is not in three month increments. No, people don't work that way. We do not work that way. So another question that came in, and I think this is one we can talk a little bit further about, you know, with this skill set, you know, as we look at skills, as we look at the skills that, uh, you know, organizations are lacking or working on right now, in many organizations, the skills frameworks are very rigid, right? They're Mm -hmm. very rigid. They're very static. They're not agile. They don't adapt very easily. Or if they do, it's a very time consuming long drawn out process. And COVID has really exposed the vulnerability of that, that it's like, well, that doesn't work in a world where things can happen overnight. You know, how, how do you see in HR and how can learning play a role in helping with that to move away from this? Okay. We've got our competency model. These are the skills. This is the way we operate to, well, we need to be more agile about it. Yeah. So let me state my limitations before I answer that question, which I don't have a pure learning background. And there are people that in my network that I would lean on very heavily for this conversation. And I would want that, that, that feedback and that opinion before making a final decision. Where I sit right now, absent of those discussions would be is I'd be looking at development more in the terms of performance. I ultimately think we're moving to more of a human performance type of a model versus human resources type of a model. Um, And that means that for me, what that translates to from a learning perspective is how do we teach people to learn better? How do we prime them to be able to absorb and integrate and then deploy new information faster? So the change cycles are more adaptable so that if you're in this rigid role today and your world just changed, that's really jarring. But if you can train people to go, okay, I have to pivot. I have to learn these new skills. Here's the steps that I go through to learn these new skills and I can accelerate that. You'll be more effective. Um, One of the biggest competencies in the 21st century in this knowledge-based economy is how well do you learn? And the people that have the most success are evolving their own learning. They have a level of self-awareness around how they learn and how they can be rewarded for that learning. I'd be looking at that measure, which is to build that agility to build that flexibility into the organization and going down to the individual level, because ultimately, in my opinion, learning needs to be intrinsic in a lot of cases, that motivation needs to come from within. I can't compel you to learn. I mean, I can, but it's just not a pleasant experience. And it doesn't actually. I want integration. I want adoption and I want people to believe in what we're doing. Um, I understand there's a difference between first aid training and leadership training, but for that leadership training, I'd be looking at the integration of those practices. So I'd be looking at how do you get people more primed for that kind of learning, because I don't think this is going to change. I mean, hopefully we don't have pandemic after pandemic, but I don't see a world where change cycles are 15, 20 years again. This is gonna continue to accelerate. People who accelerate fastest through that will have the most success, I think. Well, and and on this topic, I was, you know, with a panel of of senior learning leaders last week talking about this and things like adaptability and resilience, right? These these are going to be the skills that, you know, are are timeless. Not only are are good investments because they're timeless, but they're timely, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like we need it now and we're going to need it when this is all said and done because like you said the the 10 15 years of you know in between changes those days are gone and i think that's where as learning leaders we need to be very strategic about these skills that we're focused on and be part of these conversations with hr leaders about how do we make smart strategic short term decisions that are smart long term strategic decisions and and i think that's you know where we can continue to help you know, move away from this firefighter mode, um, which which a lot of people are struggling with right now for good reason. Their whole world has been turned on its head. And I think there's a level of empathy that everyone needs to have right now as, as we move through this. 
And what I would add, so great point. And I think what I would say first to that is that people need to be patient with themselves and with others and deploy some kindness and empathy right now. We're all figuring this out. Um, And to not spend too much time wallowing in that because we do have something to get to on the other side of this and people are relying on you. So find that balance, find that support system that you need to help you get through that time. I mentioned earlier, we connect every day at 11 o'clock Pacific time, pop in, use it to vent. It's confidential. I talk to HR leaders every single day who are going through various forms of personal and professional struggles. We're here to help people right now. And this is the time to be kind of more of a community. Um, When it comes to skill sets, I've, I said this multiple times over the last few years. Uh, it's getting me in trouble now more given where the current reality is. But people have asked me a lot, Matt, given what you've learned in the last 12, 18 months being an entrepreneur and leading multiple digital transformations, how would you structure your HR department differently today than you when you had an HR department? This accelerates my thinking, which is I'd be looking to segment the skill sets that I need in HR around core responsibilities and complementary responsibilities. An example I use a lot was instructional designers. So for operational, consistent day-to-day training, I would have that in-house because it requires a degree of organizational knowledge and history and that kind of that that legacy knowledge that you need that to understand how to contextualize, you know, SOPs and operations to fit your business. And in a market that's expanding and evolving so quickly, especially with technology and data and virtual reality and augmented reality and all these different things, I get concerned with having an instructional designer who has not been through any personal development in five years, 10 years, 12 years. Because now I know I'm getting a market representation, which is not up with the times and so many, so many things have changed over that period of time. So I would build my model in a way that actually carves out at least probably 30% of my wage budget for freelance or gig-based workers. Yeah. Data scientists, instructional designers, scrum masters, people that I may need for very finite projects or finite initiatives and build that expertise into our strategy. And I'll give you an example. In my last organization, I worked in a retail company. I had an HR department of about 25 people, give or take. Um, We did not have resourcing in place enough to have a data scientist on staff. We just didn't have that budget. So I went on Upwork and I procured somebody on a part-time basis. I think it was like six hours a month for three months to build me a model in a spreadsheet that I was able to dump numbers into and get a validated scientifically driven data model without having to bring a significantly expensive resource into the organization. I was able to spend a fraction of the cost and get the full benefit of that. Um, And I was still able to satisfy the business need, but I looked for a different way to solve for it. Uh, I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see a lot of people jump into the gig economy and we're going to see a lot of employees, employers start fishing in the gig economy because they're going to realize that they can get really talented resources outside of their immediate community. And there may be some really talented instructional designers in Lagos, Nigeria, or Bucharest, Romania, or Seoul, you know, South Korea. They're going to find that out and realize that, okay, now they're not working in the office anymore. The, the opportunity has materially changed for both the employer and the employee. Um, that to me gets really interesting and really exciting. And that's another reason why I'm building those workforce plans. I'm thinking through different scenarios around how do I keep my business continue to continuous? How do we plan for the future? Yep. Well, and that's right. I've been asked the question in the past too. Do you, do you build internal capability or do you outsource? And the answer is both. Both like there, there is no, there is no, well, if you could have all the budget and resources, would you do it in how? Like, no, I still wouldn't because it's not, it's not a sustainable model. And it's about figuring out what that right blend is based on the skills you need. And to your point about workforce strategy, you know, I do think that this current COVID situation has opened up, you know, Kelly asked the question, right? Do you see this, you know, opening up opportunity to include a more diverse and global market? I think it will. I absolutely think it will because I think it's broken a lot of the legacy myths that we've had for a long time of like, well, this is how it has to be. This is how work has to get done. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't. Um, And I think for the really strategic leaders, they're going to see that and say, this is a wake up call to say, well, it's time to think differently about that workforce strategy. Totally. It, it, it's, it's an opportunity. And again, we're going to hear about this in different ways. So we're going to hear about this on LinkedIn 
you know this, I'm waiting for the messages around <laughs> high turnover. People don't have loyalty anymore. Uh, it's going to be like that, that conversation that started to spring up around the millennial generation. They're not, you know, a lot loyal to organizations. You know, if you believe before that the organization that you work for was in your corner when things got tough, you just got a giant wide, your eyes open wide with what happened last little period of time, because the amount of organizations that are actually stepping up on are unfortunately in the minority right now. Yep. And I include the biggest companies in the world in this, in this equation. Um, so, you know, focusing on building your skills, focusing on having flexibility, both individually and organizationally positions you for success in a world that is far less predictable than we probably thought it was. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, you know, you talked about what you're doing with, with Enrique, you know, there's a lot of things I've been doing in the learning community for that reason that it's like, this is, this was, I think for individuals and professionals, a wake up call that, Hey, you know, things can happen and you might be really comfortable and secure thinking, you know, your company has your back and and that may not be the case. And and for some kudos, great. If, if that was the case, congratulations. But for many, it wasn't. And, you know, while it's, it's, it's extremely tragic, I, I think it's an opportunity for people to say, like you said, you have to acknowledge this is, this is tough, right? Mm -hmm. We have to acknowledge it, but then we also have to say, and we have to come out of the ashes, right? We have to rise from the ashes. And what can I do to kind of step forward? And I think there's going to be some opportunity that you, you may not have had before on the other end of this. If you seize it, if you watch it go by, your life's not going to change. So 18 months ago, one of the reasons why I left my organization and. You're muted. So you cut off again. <laughs> the world is conspiring. Nobody wants the computer doesn't want to hear my voice. It doesn't. But what, what I was I got like a cliffhanger mic drop moment. It's. <laughs> so what I was saying was. 18 months ago, when I made the decision to leave the corporate world, one of the reasons I did that was because it became apparent to me, given the roles that I had been in, in architecting massive restructuring projects that affected thousands of people, I saw people's names on spreadsheets and went, these are our highest performers in some cases. They're just losing their jobs because the business priorities have shifted or because their number came up or because something that had nothing to do with their performance or their commitment or the time they spent working late nights and evenings and weekends. None of that mattered. Like it just didn't matter because ultimately the economics of the organization drove the decision making. And I, I was enough of those conversations at the board level, at the executive level. And I went, okay, I'm architecting these today. Maybe I'm involved in one tomorrow. That I don't know about. And, you know, I, I was fortunate. I was a high performer. I had lots of success. I had leaders that supported me. I don't think my job was ever at risk at any point in time. But the, the business model, this top down ar you know, architecture of business, the slow moving behemoth companies are really going to struggle on the other end of this. And as the world picks up in pace, that business model is continually stress tested because it wasn't designed no. for a level of speed that we're working through right now. It wasn't designed for a global economy the way it is right now. It was designed in a manufacturing economy where outputs were more important than inputs. We're now in a knowledge-based economy where inputs and the intrinsic motivation and the discretionary effort that leads to motivation and results is far more important than the outputs. So when you look at the world through that lens, I was trying to, in my own way, make that proverbial leap. I didn't like, let me be clear. I didn't see this coming, but I saw a reality where yeah. I would need to develop skills because, you know, I've made the jump into entrepreneurship. And I can tell you the first 12 months that I did that, despite the fact that I had some success in the corporate world, was painful because a lot of the skills that I had in the corporate world do not translate into an entrepreneurial world. I spent 50 hours a week in meetings, shepherding work, moving projects through politics, you know, rallying resources. Um, when you are, are a small business, you don't do that to the same degree. You're selling, you're marketing, you're writing copy, you're talking to clients, like you're getting into the weeds in a way that you just don't as an executive. I wanted to build that level of skill set so that I had the flexibility that if things went sideways or if I just wanted the ability to choose and have the freedom that I'd be able to do that. So for me, my own decision was in part 
driven by the desire to have that freedom to be able to choose who I worked with and what I worked on and where I worked. And the irony is, let me be clear, I, I'm not complaining in the context of other people's circumstances, but the irony is not lost on me that the week after we had quarantine in Canada was the week I was supposed to leave for South America for potentially two to three months of me living down there to take full advantage of the fact that I could now work from anywhere in the world after 37 or 38 years now of being told where to be and what to be and how to do it and where this you know these shoes and where this tie that flexibility was now available and now we're in a global quarantine so I'm stuck here anyway but when it's all done that's my plan. I'm going to spend my time in different cities in the world, meeting people, immersing myself in the culture, because I have the flexibility now to do that with my job and my lifestyle. Um, that is the world we're going to be operating in is we're going to all require a degree of flexibility and adaptability to be able to respond to a pandemic or an economic shift or I mean, a business that closes. Well, and that's where, right. So this whole thing, um, like you, I didn't predict there was going to be a super bug that was going to wipe out. You know, I mean, there's just no, I, I didn't predict that. But as you watch the growing trends and and one thing I'll say before I say this is going back to your point about these big, slow moving organizations. The other thing they weren't built for is the democratization of information that technology has opened up. Right. So so this information that used to be held at a very high level behind closed doors is now being democratized, which is opening people's eyes to a lot of things. And organizations were not designed for that. So so the other thing is on the trend piece, right, we've been seeing this trend growing. People more and more have been demanding flexibility as, mm -hmm. as table stakes for a job because they're realizing, you know, that that they, they want that, that that's important to them. Um, I think this is to your point of a pressure test for a lot of organizations. People who may not have have realized how important it was to them, they're going to get a taste of that. And I think, you know, I've, I've been in conversations where people have, I've heard people say, I'm looking forward to going back to the office. So I've seen the, the debates about, is everybody going to be remote? Is everybody going to be, well, I don't think that's the answer, but I do think even the people who do want to go back and look forward to kind of going back to some level of normalcy will have a different expectation of flexibility than they ever had before COVID-19. I get it. Like I've been at home now for three weeks. I miss people, right? Like, like I, I miss interacting with people in a physical setting. So I understand the desire to get back into an office setting. I'm, I'm with you there. Um, and at the same time, um, I think you're right. I think people are going to acquire that flexibility, that integration of work versus life. Um, I've told this story a few times. I remember in a job, I think three or four jobs ago, I remember getting my first company issued Blackberry and laptop and thinking it was the coolest thing ever. I'm like, oh my God, I can now work from home. This is great. And then like a week later, I'm like, this sucks. Because now my boss just emails me all day, all night, all weekend. I now realize I have an electronic leash. Whereas before my computer was in the office, I had to go to the office to do the work and nobody called me at home or sent me messages in the evening because they were also at home. So that changed and now there's a requirement. So I think about... I think about the value proposition in terms of big companies. So when I first started with large organizations 20 years ago, they were like, you know, you wanted to work for a big company. You wanted the stability. You wanted the brand name behind you. Your parents would brag about you at dinner parties because you work for these companies. Like it was something that was seen as a positive thing. Yeah. And overnight, not really overnight, but over the course of the last 20 years, it's now shifted and said, now there's some real strong value to being a solopreneur or having diversified revenue streams or not being reliant on a single entity to provide your income. And when you factor in things like work-life balance, which has very clearly gone in a direction where they're asking employees to do a heck of a lot more, but aren't really willing to provide the flexibility in return the the needles moving in the wrong direction. I think we're going to see a shift back. People have parents at home. They have children at home. They have other considerations in their life. And I've always believed that I don't really care when the work gets done, where the work gets done, just needs to get done. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to move to that kind of that broader thinking. I think we're going to stop worrying about things that really don't matter and focus on the things that do matter, which is, are we delivering our business objectives? Are our people happy and healthy? That's a starting point, not are you at your desk at nine o'clock? Because if you're not, you're not being productive. Right. Well, wrong, I, wrong conversation. 
And I think before this, some of this fear, right, was based on assumptions, right? Like, well, if people did this, the world would end, right? Work wouldn't happen if people you know, were like this. And I think now this is showing that it's like, well, no, it does still, it does still move on. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see and watch how organizations navigate this because well, right now everybody's focused on the like, oh my gosh, our workforce just went remote and is distributed. Yeah, it's not that far off before you're going to have to start thinking about reintegration, and those are the conversations that, you know, if you're not having, you need to you need to be having. So, what one quick question, I'll, and I'll just tackle this. You can jump in if you want. That came in from uh, Tara Jeannie. She was asking, you know, does do I do I do we think this open up doors for more online learning and and a turn in e learnings and virtual learning? As the learning guy, I'll, I'll take a first pass. If you want to add to it, you can. I think the answer to that is yes, but we need to handle that carefully, right? Going back to what we had said earlier, there's going to be no shortage of, of business leaders coming saying, we need virtual training on this. We need we need e-learning on this. We need online learning on this because it's just a reactionary thing. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't buy into that because we run the risk of creating a digital landfill of stuff and not really adding value to the business, right? Which again, puts us at further risk. It might make people feel good in the moment, but then at the end, it's like, okay, what did we get for that? So I think it opens doors for that. Where I see it opening doors is it may help be helping break some of the mindset that, well, training only really works if it's in person. Like, mm, no, that's not true. There's there's other ways to handle it. So I think that's a huge opportunity in learning. We should be capitalizing on it. I think we need to be careful how far we go with it that we that we don't go too far. Matt, anything you would add to that? So yes, but your previous point, I think um, I think it's important to think about learning tech learning and period like the only difference between learning e-learning and in-person learning is the medium in which we're providing learning yep if you're doing lecture driven learning whether we're in a classroom and i'm just talking at you for three straight hours or you're on a webinar where i'm talking to you for three straight hours it's equally painful equally ineffective <laughs> equally ineffective and painful so you're right there's going to be a mass movement of people towards i need this 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 E-learning is a component of a broader learning strategy in an organization that needs to be supplemented and complemented by on-site one-on-one development with your leader, follow-ups, coaching conversations, perhaps some peer and buddy systems, regular check-ins. And we have the technology now that we are able to replicate a very good number of experiences through learning by being intentional about gamification, about creating real activities or case studies. We can use different mechanisms to take learning from, again, this classroom style, I talk to you in a single room to, I now have a webcam. Um, if people think they're gonna be able to move things over. <laughs> well, and that's right. I mean, that's that's the conversation we've had. I've had on this show multiple times. Where it's like it's not about moving things from one box to the other. I mean, that's not that's not going to get us net us the best thing. And I think you know we'll, it'll be it's a unique opportunity we have um, right now. And I think technology is opening the doors for a lot of things. I think some of the things that I've talked about when it comes to digital transformation, specifically with learning, is that it's not about you know reaching the same audience in a different medium. It's about saying, how do we create the same experience for everyone, no matter where they are, what their capacity, what they're like, let's let's make this, let's democratize learning for people and recognize, let's not just say, okay, these people are here. Now these people get to do the same thing in a different way. And I think that's a and, lot of what we're talking about with digital transformation. And to wrap it as you would, if you were selling it to a customer. Yes. So. You, you want you want to use this is where you can buddy with your marketing folks. Um, and I've talked a number of times about how I think marketing and HR should be blended. That's a whole different conversation for a different day. But in this context, you want views. You want people to engage. You want people to pull your learning, not push your learning at them. Um, and if you can develop modules and programs that give people tangible 
applicable learning that will benefit them in their lives and their careers, people will source that out. Um, if you create gamification and incent people to be able to deliver results, they will more likely participate in that than if you just push PowerPoint slides at them. So I think it's important to understand that we're going to have more technology with learning. Yep. And I think we go back to quantification. If I'm a learning leader, I would want to get very clear quickly on the ROI of my training programs. So if I get kind of pushed into a corner by an executive that says, I want to build a webinar based, you know, one sided learning program, we can demonstrate the inefficacy of that program in terms of the output and the retention of the learners and put it up against programs that we would have built with much more learner um, styles in, in a customization, whether it is customized learning, whether it's gamification, we can build a side-by-side -side comparison and say, when we do it our way, this is the result. When we do it your way, this is the result. Let's promise to never ever build a webinar-based learning platform ever again. That's one way. Yep, completely agree. Okay. Well, you know, we're we're at the the bottom of the hour here, Matt. It's been great. I think you know, kind of the closing thought that you know, based on what we were talking about through this um, whole thing, that I think you know, as as people are struggling, they're dealing with a lot right now. There are people losing their jobs. Um, I, I personally have a very soft spot for that, and I know, right? Your, your identity is being challenged. You're you're questioning, you know, what value do I have? Is is everything I thought I had not there? And don't 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 buy into that. Reach out to the people in the community. There are lots of people out there who are there to support you and you know help you pick yourself up. You're gonna have to pick yourself up, but you don't have to do it alone. And I think that's a large part of you know what what everything we're talking about is driving towards today. So I appreciate you being here, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. All right. Well, thanks everybody for watching. Thanks for the engagement. Lots of dialogue. Hopefully you got something valuable out of this. And uh, Matt, we'll, we'll definitely talk again. Looking forward to it. All Be right. well, everyone. Thanks everybody.